Thanks very much. Uh, let's resume. What we're talking about here are calculation methodology and, um, frankly, tilts uh, in that methodology. Some of these are legal, although remember there are two forms of legality. One is WTO rules, the other is U.S. statutory rules. Um, and so um, some of these things may be legal under U.S. law but not WTO, some vice versa. Um, the, uh, some of these are well known, some are not. My favorite, which is perfectly legal under the WTO, is idiotic, which is how profits are calculated. Uh, this is, don't blame the U.S. for this, although it helped. This was the EU's idea. So profits are calculated by eliminating all sales at a loss from the profit calculation. If this sounds familiar, that's what Enron did. <laughs> it's great. Anyone can show a profit if you eliminate all your losses. Um, and indeed, if you did it, it's securities fraud. The WTO anti-dumping rules, much to their shame, consecrate securities fraud. It's fraudulent. It's a misstatement of profits. Um, I'm surprised no uh, plaintiff's attorney has figured this out and taken the public version of a, of, of a submission and sued. Don't get any ideas. Don't, <laughs> and don't give me any credit for it. Um, some of these um, are, you know, some of the other ones uh, you can argue under the WTO language about uh, price adjustments, uh, whether they have to be symmetric or not. I think 2.4 says a fair comparison. So we haven't seen that case yet. Uh, other countries do it even worse than we do. Uh, our uh, attempt to deal with level of trade is incomprehensible statutorily. <laughs> the reg is also incomprehensible, and commerce practice is incomprehensible. But I promise you, no business person would recognize it. Um, and indeed, uh, no one knows this except me and John Greenwald, but John, who was my predecessor as the head of import administration, had a whole set of regulations ready to go um, that weren't pro-petitioner or anti-petitioner. John will happily tell you he's psychologically pro-petitioner. Um, um, but they weren't. They were just business logic. They were much shorter, much easier to read, et cetera. And we tried to get them through, and the <clears throat> steel industry killed them. Uh, we never even got to announce them. Uh, so there are a lot of these adjustments that literally, as I say, profit's my favorite. But as you'll hear, most of these don't make sense. When I first encountered zeroing in my first dumping case in 1976, and I worked at a firm that did petitioners, petitions and responses, and I did both. So I asked John Kugelman, who was the case analyst, now, explain to me this again. He went through it again. I said, wait a minute. It doesn't make sense. Because <laughs> mathematically, it didn't make sense. Uh, and we still haven't solved it. Um, with that, I will turn it over to whoever which you wants to go first. Bob? I guess it's, it's zeroing. It's me. Alphabet. Let's do it. Uh, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I've been tasked with discussing uh, three very technical methodological uh, issues, including zeroing, uh, targeted dumping, and uh, the use of the cost test. And I'll do my best to simplify these uh, without putting everyone to sleep in the process. Um, the first of these, uh, zeroing, has been described by some, including Cato, as you know, one of the most controversial and egregious of all of commerce's practices. 
you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but it certainly is one of the most litigated and resilient uh, practices. Um, I didn't even know it went back into the 1970s. I know as long as I've been around, we've been talking about zeroing. Um, it's been litigated for at least 10 years at the WTO. Um, by one count, there have been no less than 26 separate decisions uh, involving zeroing uh, with the United States. It's been consistently repudiated, um, and yet the Commerce Department is still zeroing. We're still talking about it. Um, it's one issue that just never seems to go away. And I can tell you as Respondents Council, it it's can particularly can haunt you because not only is it always there, it's pretty much involved in every single case if you're a dumping lawyer. It's not like some issues that come up once in your career or once every couple of years. You always have that one line in the computer program that does zeroing. You have to dig it out. You have to analyze it. Uh, you have to brief it. Um, commerce rejects your arguments, and then you start the process again. So it's definitely something that's going to be around we have to grapple with. <clears throat> so what is zeroing? Um, you know, at its most basic and simple level, it's when commerce ignores negative dumping margins. You know, stated another way, it's when you don't get credit for your non-dump sales. And this issue arises because of the way commerce calculates margins. Commerce, at the most basic level, it's a price-to-price -price comparison between the home market and the United States. Um, but commerce doesn't do just one big global comparison. It's actually a series of many separate individual comparisons, either sale by sale or product by product. And at the end of the calculation, all of these separate individual dumping mounts are aggregated together so that you can calculate one average rate for each producer or exporter. Um, you know, and typically in that situation, you can have hundreds or thousands of sales. Uh, some are going to be positive. Some are going to be negative it's because sometimes there's dumping on a sale. Sometimes there isn't. Um, commerce's practice is to disregard all of the negative amounts of dumping. And this is why it's called zeroing. It's a line in the computer program that zeroes it out. It sets the negative amount equal to zero. So it should be no surprise that this type of program is going to inflate the dumping margin, right? It's, it's simple math. If you're not counting the negative numbers, um, the positive amount is going to go up. Um, in my experience, uh, as a respondent's counsel, it almost always increases your margin dramatically. I mean, not, you could have a situation where you have dumping on every single sale, but um, typically it can increase your margin quite a bit. I think I've seen a Cato study which has said that if you got rid of zeroing, on average it would reduce the margin by some 86%. So clearly it's an adverse impact. Um, it's an important issue um, and something that we in Respondent Side are continuously vigilant of. Um, what has the WTO said? Well, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, they've consistently said it's illegal uh, to zero. They've said it's illegal to zero in investigations. They've said more recently it's illegal to zero in reviews, um, specialty proceedings, new shipper reviews, uh, possibly for sunset purposes. So it's covering now a range of the proceedings. Um, Commerce's response has basically over the years been to fight it tooth and nail. Now, I'm not here to bash Commerce. I used to work at Commerce. I worked there for four years in the legal counsel's office. I probably signed off on some zeroing decisions. My former boss is sitting in the front row. I see several Commerce people have joined the discussion since we've turned to this panel. Um, you know, it's inherently a legal process. So that's part of the process. When you get lawyers involved, you tend to defend things. You need to defend yourself. Um, that said, there are a lot of folks who say they can't understand what commerce has done the past couple of years. Um, some have said there's been a multi-stage strategy of, you know, trying to limit and confine the findings of the panels and the appellate body just to the specific case involved, the specific facts. 
Um, but then faced with repeated losses, um, Commerce eventually relented and about five years ago agreed not to zero anymore in investigations. Um, however, they continued to zero in administrative reviews. And as respondents, counsel can tell you that's significant because the vast majority of proceedings at Commerce are administrative reviews, and particularly recently, not new investigations. Um, so zeroing continues in most cases, more cases than it doesn't. Um, more recently, uh, some on respondents' bar have noticed uh, a latest tactic, which is to switch to a targeted dumping methodology um, for what some say is to simply resume zeroing in investigations sort of through the back door. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because um, Commerce basically had never used a targeted dumping methodology before until um, they had agreed to stop zeroing in investigations. Um, I think there had been one case, um, you know, but since then we've seen a rash of cases. Um, but what is targeted dumping? Um, basically, it's limited dumping. It's, it's you're not dumping on all sales to, to all customers. Maybe you're targeting specific customers for specific time periods. Um, and the idea is that an exporter is masking its dumping by doing that. Um, and I'll spare you the details, but Commerce has a slightly different calculation methodology in a targeted dumping case designed to combat this. Um, and so why is Commerce using this? Um, it's for the simple reason that the WTO has not specifically addressed zeroing in a targeted dumping analysis yet. Part of the reason is because Commerce really hasn't used it enough, so it eventually will work its way up. Um, so again, um, because of the legal technicalities, Commerce is still permitted to use zeroing uh, through a targeted dumping analysis. The problem is that um, you know, targeted, the targeted dumping analysis was meant to be an exceptional situation, right? It's, it's in the statute. It's an exception. It's an exception to the rule. Um, but, you know, recently it has become more commonplace. Um, and to make matters worse, uh, commerce has been, its policy on uh, using a targeted dumping analysis has been evolving, right? Originally, uh, if commerce found targeted dumping, it would then zero on the specific sales that were targeted. Uh, more recently, it has expanded that such that if it finds any targeted dumping, it uh, can then zero on all sales, sort of uh, as was done in the original investigation. Um, so where does this leave us? Uh, I think it leaves us with zeroing. Um, basically, we've come full circle. Um, you know, initially, Commerce had agreed not to zero in investigations, um, officially. Uh, and then, you know, through the use of a targeted dumping analysis, uh, commerce was beginning to zero again in investigations. Um, commerce still zeroes in reviews, although recently, toward the end of last year, a proposal was put out to change its practice um, so that it would no longer zero in reviews. Um, that's a positive step. It seems to be taken in reaction to threatened retaliation on some of the pending WTO uh, cases. It's not clear that that's going to be implemented um, if or when. Um, there's talk that it might not be. Um, there are uh, some apparent loopholes in the language that would give commerce discretion not to zero in certain situations. Um, and on top of that, there is always the pending Doha round um, where the United States has made clear that it would like to restore zeroing authority specifically in whatever agreement is negotiated. So all of that is going on, and it appears that zeroing is still going to be around for a while. Um, you know, those on respondent side think that there shouldn't be any zeroing. Um, and uh, to the extent a targeted dumping analysis is used, it should be limited to those specific circumstances for which it was intended. Um, with the few minutes I have left, I'm going to cover the uh, issues related to the cost test. 
Um, this issue is not as well known as zeroing, um, but from practitioner standpoint, it's just as important. Um, often it can be more important. It's, it's one of the issues that can really, again, affect uh, the calculation of the dumping margins. What it is is that when commerce undertakes its test of home market prices to U.S. prices, it will take the home market prices and test them against cost before doing the, doing the calculation. Those that are found to be below cost will be discarded. They'll be kicked out of the equation. Um, and so what happens is you essentially remove lower price sales from the calculation on the home market side only, uh, resulting in a higher home market price, which tends to increase the dumping margins. Um, there are some um, who think there shouldn't be a cost test at all. From a purist standpoint, the whole reason for the dumping analysis is you have a protected sanctuary market in your home market. That means you're protected from competition. You can charge exorbitant profits um, and cross-subsidize your sales around the world into the United States. So that's the only time when you actually have true dumping. Um, you know, the reality is it's in the law, um, and it's probably not going to change, uh, although Dan, I know, is working very hard to, to undermine that. Um, so for those of us sitting up here, we still have to deal with it. Um, um, we have... There are other problems with it from a from a uh, administrative standpoint, which is how is commerce administering the test. Um, the statute doesn't really make clear exactly how you're supposed to allocate costs. Uh, there's a lot of uh, discretion um, and manipulation and unpredictability in the cost test. Um, a couple of examples are, for example, if it doesn't tell you how to allocate costs, most companies keep costs at a very high level, uh, but yet for purposes of the case, you have to allocate it down to a very specific level. Um, another issue is what's known as the major input rule. Under this rule, uh, any uh, major inputs or, or, or raw materials that you receive from an affiliated party are subject to a rule that would inflate them to the higher of your affiliate's cost, your transfer price that you paid to your affiliate or the market price. Um, so this tends overall to inflate your cost, which typically increases your dumping margin. Um, the test for the affiliation is very broad, um, as little as 5% 5% ownership in stock, um, uh, a joint venture agreement, um, or a close supplier relationship, uh, commerce can deem you affiliated. And it's gotten to the point that essentially in any case, any of your suppliers can be deemed affiliated if you, if you have any sort of ownership um, or, or supply agreement. So uh, it gets to the point where almost all of your suppliers in a case can be deemed affiliated, which can increase your cost. Um, and more recently, Commerce has shown an interest in using quarterly, uh, quarterly cost uh, analysis. So normally, Commerce will calculate your cost based on an, an entire annual period. Um, but if there are periods where your raw materials prices are moving, Commerce can chop that into quarters and um, calculate your cost that way. Again, sometimes it helps, sometimes it hurts. It's just another, um, another area of unpredictability, and you know those petitioners will argue for one way and respondents will argue for the other. Um, so overall, there's a lot of unpredictability in the cost test, um, which again can increase your cost and increase your dumping margins. So these are some of the methodological tricks, um, you know, basically, the public doesn't often know exactly how these calculations work down in the details um, that can skew the analysis. So for, for zeroing, you know, the result is it's not a true average because you're excluding uh, negative sales. And for the cost test, you're excluding lower price sales only on one side of the equation, which also can skew the analysis. Um, so I think we should continually rethink these. And with that, 
Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Matt Nicely with Thompson Hine. And uh, like everybody else up here, and most of us speaking today, I've been doing this stuff for 20 plus years. Happy to be sitting on a panel today with two of my former colleagues who uh, Dan and Bob and I were all together at Wilkie Farr for many, many years and uh, fought the good fight on a lot of this stuff on behalf of uh, various, uh, mostly foreign industries, but also uh, their importers and their purchasers as well. Um, uh, just to comment on something Mr. Finger said earlier, I appreciate his, his uh, calling us warriors. And I guess in that context, uh, we, we are warriors day to day with regard to the administration of this law. Uh, if Dan is successful, a lot of us will be out of a job. Um, so uh, Dan Eikenson, um, that is, asked uh, me to uh, address a couple of issues. Um, that sort of bridge Bob's and Dan Porter's comments today, Bob, Bob having discussed uh, market economy issues at DOC, uh, Dan planning to discuss mostly NME. Um, and I'm going to talk about both the 14-point um, trade law enforcement initiative uh, that was oddly enough rolled out as part of the National Export Initiative, um, and second, the non-market economy or NME or enemy uh, anti-dumping methodology. Um, first, on the Trade Law Enforcement Initiative, which I, I always find words like that, by the way, enforcement in this context sort of funny, because the way this town talks about trade law enforcement is, if it means a higher dumping margin, it means we're enforcing. Um, uh, you know, enforcement ought to be thinking about things like, how is customs handling issues like transshipment or these types of issues, but instead, we seem to talk about enforcement, meaning how can we get those margins up? Um, well, this, uh, these policy proposals were announced in August of last year, again, as part of Obama, uh, President Obama's efforts to double U.S. exports. Um, they're pretty clearly geared, on nearly all of them, to either increase ADCVD duties or to make it difficult to eliminate ADCVD duties. And you might, again, ask what this has to do with exports, and that would be a very good question. Um, as you've heard, the vast bulk of U.S. imports subject to ADCVD duties are input, inputs to U.S. manufacturing. And tougher AD laws doesn't help these, uh, these, ex these companies export. It hurts them, and the policy doesn't take into, into account the copycat syndrome that, that uh, Gary talked about earlier. That is, when faced with tougher U.S. trade laws, other countries toughen theirs and bring more cases. Uh, and this clearly affects our exporters. And that's becoming a bigger and bigger deal, as, as Gary talked about. And for us, it's, it's sort of interesting. Uh, at my firm, um, we've got clients in the trade group uh, that one day might be defending against a U.S. case against, uh, against their, their inputs, imports of their inputs. The next day, they might be supporting a petition with regard to their output. And then the third day, they'd be defending against another country's case against their output, their exports of their output. Gone are the days, uh, and in fact, just over the course, in my view, of just 20 years of doing this stuff, um, of mercantilist industries. Most industries are now global, as they should be. And the 14-point trade law enforcement initiative doesn't take this reality into account. So. In any event, what are all these policies about? 
um, well, most of them, at least the substantive ones, uh, concern the NME methodology, which makes sense given that most cases are now against China, um, and China is an easy scapegoat for, for our economic woes. It also makes sense because the Obama administration had to give something to Congress in return for its unwillingness to call China's currency manipulation a countervailable subsidy. Indeed, this is really the reason for these policies. They can't honestly have anything to do with the National Export Initiative. But I digress. What are the policies? Well, six of them affect both market economy and non-market economy uh, cases, and the other eight concern mainly non-market economy cases. I don't have time to cover all of them, so I'll just, uh, uh, and I suspect your eyes would glaze over if I did. Um, so just let me give you some highlights. Um, the first one that affects all cases is uh, three zeros revocation. Um, what this concerns is, uh, and it's been, in, it's been in effect for many years, it allows respondents to rid themselves of an order if they prove that they could sell to the U.S. at commercial quantities without dumping for three consecutive years. It's a good policy to incentivize full market participation without dumping, or the way Petitioner's Council like, like to put it, participation in the market with the discipline of the order. Yet now we propose to take that away. Why? Because doing so will increase our exports? Uh, no, because keeping exporters subject to our retrospective anti-dumping system chills trade to the benefit of petitioners. Taking this right away does nothing but throw a bone to protectionists in Congress and increase the ire of our trading partners. But also importantly, it's probably WTO inconsistent uh, under Article 11.1 and 11.2. Uh, but I don't have time to get into that today, and we can talk about it maybe during the Q&A. But the bottom line for today's purposes is it's just bad policy. Um, of the other five that affect both market economy and non-market economy cases, the other one most likely to have the Im an impact on, uh, on duty rates is the sampling proposal. Uh, traditionally, in multi-respondent reviews where every company can't be examined, uh, and by the way, in a lot of these cases, furniture, shrimp, um, there are multiple other examples, um, oftentimes the number of companies subject to an administrative review can be uh, over 100. So we give, uh, it, it's clear commerce doesn't have the ability to, to review each one and calculate dumping margins for each one of them. Um, so what commerce traditionally has done is chosen the largest two, three, or four companies <clears throat> and then calculate an average that would apply to, to most of the others. Um, by switching to a sampling methodology, in essence, what we're talking about doing is engaging in a game of gotcha. Uh, that is, select for examination unsuspecting respondents who are less likely to be prepared for the rigors of a DOC examination and thus ping them and possibly the rest of the industry with higher dumping margins. Um, the other proposals that affect both market economy and non-market economy cases are less objectionable, so let's get right into non-market economy. Um, first, some quick NME 101 for those of you who might not know what we're talking about here. Um, this is a policy that grew out of the Cold War when communist countries really were our enemies and their economies could be characterized as centrally planned. And because of this kind of economy, DOC assumed two things. And they assumed this with, to some extent with support in the statute. Um, first, they created in their minds the notion that a countrywide entity existed, 
which we sometimes refer to as China Inc. or nowadays Vietnam Inc. So whereas in market economy cases, mandatory respondents are selected and examined and everyone else gets the so-called all others rate, which is an average of the mandatory respondents rates. In non-market economy cases, you are presumed to be part of China Inc. unless you, are, you can prove you're independent of the central government. As such, in non-market economy cases, you have a mandatory, you have rates for the mandatory respondents, which almost always are deemed uh, independent of the government. Separate rate companies um, who prove their independence from the government and, and get the equivalent of, equivalent of the all others rate that's used in market economy cases. And third, a countrywide rate that everyone else is subjected to because it is assumed that they are part of, as I say, China Inc. And because China Inc. doesn't exist and therefore can't cooperate with the Commerce Department, this countrywide rate is a punitive adverse facts available rate and usually is based on the petition, which is why you hear about these 200%, 300% countrywide rates. Unlike market economy cases where there's no adverse facts available all others rate, the non-market economy countrywide rate can result in, in, in effectively banning a portion of the foreign industry from the U.S. market. I should mention again, this is not only bad policy because it bears no resemblance in reality, it's also likely WTO inconsistent. And I believe a WTO panel decision is expected on this topic soon. And in fact, there was one with regard to the EU's practice uh, issued uh, not long ago. The second important element of NME cases is the manner in which DOC calculates the margins for the, mar for the uh, mandatory respondents, those companies that are uh, fully examined and uh, for which a dumping margin is calculated. DOC doesn't compare U.S. prices to home market prices. In other words, they don't engage in what the whole point of this process is, which is uh, an analysis of price discrimination. Rather, it compares U.S. prices with a constructed home market value that involves a two-step process. First, it collects the factors of production. How many pieces or pounds of uh, raw material does it take to make a unit of a finished product? And next, it applies to these factors surrogate values or surrogate costs from a country it deems economically comparable and that has significant producers of merchandise that is similar to the product being investigated. So in addition to having the respondents report their US sales data in the Section C questionnaire as they would in a market economy case, and then factors of production in the Section D questionnaire, which is essentially a substitute for a cost uh, analysis, everyone races around looking for appropriate surrogate countries and surrogate values Petitioners look for high numbers, respondents look for low numbers, the differences between which can lead to zero dumping margins on the one hand or 100% plus dumping margins on the other. It is a horribly inexact process, despite the requirement that the most accurate margins be calculated. And even at its most precise, despite the, uh, it, it, it suffers from being unpredictable therefore making it impossible for the exporter to even know whether it's dumping or not. It is, by all measures, a silly process and one that should be terminated. It is anachronistic. It is a vestige of the Cold War and the days when communist countries were truly centrally planned, which even DOC now admits no longer exists, at least in China and Vietnam, if you consider their current CVD uh, approach in those cases. 
We maintain this practice despite the fact that we could easily calculate market economy dumping margins for Chinese and Vietnamese companies, just like we calculate countervailing duty margins for these companies nowadays as well, which Dan Porter will discuss in greater detail. Indeed, if we subjected China to the market economy method, including actual cost investigations, I suspect it will be difficult for many of those companies to handle the rigors of such an, such an, an examination. Indeed, and this was in a public setting, so I can say this. I heard Joe Dorn just the other day uh, at an event at Hughes Hubbard um, say that he expected market economy margins to be just as high as non-market economy margins. If that's true, why not get rid of this enemy fiction? Doing so would not only be more intellectually honest, we could also more legitimately apply our countervailing duty laws to China's industrial policies, which ought to be our focus, rather than engaging in this distracting double remedy debate, which Dan, again, I'll leave that to him. Anyway, back to the enemy part of the 14-point trade law enforcement initiative. As I said, eight of the 14 new policies are specific to non-market economy uh, cases. One of those would make it more difficult to convince the Commerce Department that exporters are independent of the government which seems to take us in the opposite direction of DOC's current CVD policy, as it suggests that DOC thinks more companies are part of China, Inc., a deviation from which supposedly justified reversing the long-held policy not to apply CVD law to non-market economies. Uh, uh, anyway, in any event, uh, the fact that the policy makes no sense simply proves the empty protectionist nature of the entire endeavor. The other non-market economy policies are aimed at driving these margins higher. Some of them reflect simply turning practice into policy, so there's really not much new there. Um, others reflect a tightening of the rules to drive normal value higher, such as restricting the use of market economy purchases, which, by the way, by their very title, sound like goods, better substitutes for surrogate values. Uh, then uh, if, if the companies actually incurred those, those uh, purchases themselves from, from market economy, you know, by market, imports from market economies, um, or to drive U.S. net price higher by, uh, sorry, by driving U.S. price lower, such as the deduction that they've proposed for the VAT or export taxes. All of these would increase the dumping margins, which brings me back to where I started Policies aimed at increasing duties, mostly incurred on manufacturers' inputs, is bad policy, uh, but made even worse when couched as a way to help increase our exports. Thank you. Thanks. Good afternoon. In case anyone forgot on my way over here, I'm still Dan Porter with the law firm of Winston Strawn, uh, specialized in international trade matters with a particular focus on AD and CVD. Uh, indeed, I've been in the AD-CVD trenches for more than 25 years. Um, what I want to do today is continue the discussion of the Commerce Department's approach toward non-market economies, and China in particular. And I believe the extra emphasis on cases against China is appropriate, given that there are now so many cases against China. In fact, I believe from the last few years, China has accounted for more than 65% of total AD cases uh, uh, initiated by the United States. And that's just anti-dumping. Um, as Matt has discussed, there are special rules 
that are applied to countries deemed to be non-market economies. And what I want to do today is to, or I'm asked to do today, is to talk about how those special rules, how the special anti-dumping rules against China are affected by Commerce Department's relatively recent decision to start bringing uh, CVD cases against China. Now, very simply, the simultaneous application of the countervailing duties and the special rules applied to non-market economies results in double remedy, double imposition of remedy, that is, double counting of the remedy for the same alleged wrong. Now, before getting into the double counting issue, I want to step back and highlight what I believe is an intellectual consistency problem with Commerce's approach. The intellectual consistency problem can actually be evidenced by Commerce's own words. I highlight two factual decisions that Commerce rendered about the same time. In August 2006, in the line paper uh, anti-dumping case against China, Commerce addressed what, in light of a lot of economic reforms, whether China should still be deemed a non-market economy. Commerce spent a lot of effort on this, and in an essentially a more than 70-page decision memorandum, found that commerce should not be graduated to market economy status, that commerce should, excuse me, that China should still be designated as a non-market economy. And I want to read a quote. Uh, essentially, after extensive analysis, commerce found that, open quote, market forces in China are not yet sufficiently developed to permit the use of prices and costs for purposes of commerce's dumping analysis, close quote. That was August 2006. Now, just seven months later, in March 2007, Commerce issued another factual decision addressing China's economy. This was in the essentially coded-free sheet paper case, which was the first coded uh, paper case. And what did Commerce find? What factual findings did they make? Again, another quote. Commerce found, open quote, market forces now determine the prices of more than 90% of products traded in China closed quote. That was the primary factual underpinning for, uh, for initiating CVD against China, for reversing 23 years of commerce practice of not applying the CVD law to non-market economies. Now, I ask you to contemplate these two findings directly. First, market forces in China are not sufficiently developed to allow commerce to use Chinese prices and costs for AD purposes Yet, second, market forces now determine uh, uh, the market force determine 90% of all products traded in China. Essentially, Commerce says costs and prices in China are fine for CVD, but not for anti-dumping. That is, a particular industry in China can be both market economy and not market economy at the same period of time for the same product intellectual consistency, not to be found. Um, let me, get, I've been asked to address uh, sort of the double counting aspect of it, and um, I basically just want to make two comments on, on double counting. First, I note that there have been several other sort of entities that have looked at this. Uh, we've had a government accounting office report study it, we've had the Court of National Trade look at it, and the WTO. 
and every single one that's looked at it has concluded that the simultaneous application of, of the enemy special rules for non-market economies and CVD results in double counting. Essentially, only commerce is really the outlier here. Now, how does, how does the double counting work? Perhaps the best example uh, is to use the subsidy program that is most often found in CVD cases against China, which is nicknamed LTAR or less than adequate remuneration. This describes a situation when the exporter is getting a raw material input from a state-owned uh, supplier, essentially a, a supplier owned by the Chinese government. Let me give you an example of the OCTG case. In that case, by far, the highest margin was for this aspect. The allegation was these pipe producers, OCTG stands for oil country tubular goods, the oil pipe, pipe used for oil drilling, and the allegation was the pipe producers, the pipe exporters, purchased steel from state-owned steel suppliers and that they were being given a benefit through in a low price for the hot rolled steel used to make the pipe. Okay, allegation, commerce found it was true, and commerce imposed a CVD equal to the difference between what the exporter actually paid for the hot rolled and the world market, uh, world market price for hot rolled steel. That difference was imposed as a CVD, thereby completely offsetting the benefit of, of, of purchasing hot rolled steel. Now, Go over the dumping side. What did commerce do? Commerce calculated a dumping margin with a constructed cost, as Matt explained, using a surrogate value for hot roll steel that was much higher than the company's own purchase price. So you have a dumping margin calculated with a very high hot roll steel cost, and you have a CVD calculated using the world benchmark price. This is direct evidence of, of double counting, and yet commerce still to this day claims that there's really no evidence of double counting. Um, what to do? Dan Eikenson sort of asked, you know, it's good to come up here, and we all feel good, at least some of us feel good, uh, Eric notwithstanding, uh, to, uh, to, to describe all the uh, idiocies and uh, um, bash commerce for, for what they're doing. But, you know, it would be helpful to perhaps suggest, uh, you know, how to resolve this. Um, two, two, two possible suggestions. One is to simply graduate China uh, and make them a, a market economy. That would make sense. I think uh, Matt has, has suggested uh, it was the thing to do. I think everyone recognizes politically that's going to be very difficult. I, just, I, I don't see, see, see that happening. And so my proposal to commerce is to do what the Europeans do. That is, recognize there are some companies in China that exist that are market-oriented, that essentially follow market principles, and in those situations, allow normal anti-dumping rules to be applied to them. The Europeans have done it. Uh, Commerce is actually talking about this. Uh, and I note, um, sort of interestingly, in March 2007, in their memorandum announcing we're now going to apply CVD to China, they actually had a very interesting line. I'm not sure actually how it got through, but it did. And it says, we recognize that our decision to apply a market economy law, CVD, to China, perhaps some changes are needed on the anti-dumping side, and they specifically reference this idea applying essentially market economy treatment to individual Chinese exporters. 
They actually had a Federal Register notice. I think they actually had two Federal Register notices on this. Lots of comments, but yet here we are four years later, uh, and they have consistently rejected uh, uh, this idea even when, 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 when asked. Anyway, so that's my proposal, and I hope we get into some good questions and answers. Thank you. Let's have some good questions and answers. Someone? Sam. Identify yourself again. Sam Gilson with Washington Tariff and Trade Letter. You mentioned the CIT ruling on double counting, which I guess is the most imperative to uh, commerce since it's under their jurisdiction rather more directly than WTO. What has been the outcome is of that uh, ruling? Has uh, commerce actually stopped and uh, applied the law as uh, Judge Rastani, I guess it was, um, said it should be? Um, good question. Uh, Commerce and petitioners appeal to the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which I believe you know is sort of the appeals court over the CIT, and that's where it is now. Uh, we expect oral argument in that case probably in September with a decision by the end of the year. And essentially the Court of Appeals, at the Court of Appeals, there are two issues. Uh, first, does commerce have the legal authority under U.S. law to apply the CVD law to non-market economies? And second, if they have that authority, have they done so in a reasonable manner, specifically not taking into account or refusing to take into account the double counting aspect? So those two issues are at the Court of Appeals. Um, under uh, a long-standing court decision uh, called Timken, commerce is allowed to defer. Uh, complying with the CIT decision until there's been a final ruling by the Court of Appeals. So it gets into a little bit of uh, uh, court procedures, and they're allowed to sort of ignore the Court of International Trade's ruling until there's been a final decision by the Court of Appeals. I have to note, just again, because no one ever thinks about this, U.S. exporters don't get that. Foreign authorities don't sit around thinking, oh, the local courts that have jurisdiction over me are going to do anything to me. The ECJ is a rubber stamp for the European Commission, for example. So the only way U.S. exporters get any justice is going to the WTO, and the U.S. has only done that three times. I just want to emphasize that. No one here thinks about U.S. exporters, but they have a much harder road to hoe. Chinese have been able to, exporters on zeroing, you know, foreign exporters have now won in not only the WTO, but CAFC. If he wins his case at the CAFC, commerce will comply or else they go to jail. I don't have that when I'm representing U.S. exporters overseas. Next question. Please. Dan, with your proposal about uh, Identify MLI, yourself, please. I'm sorry. Will Schoberg, Ducey Mastriani, and Schomburg. Dan, with your proposal about instituting MOIs, um, market-oriented industries in PRC and ME cases, are you, are you submitting that in order to get an MOI that you would have to have the whole industry respond and be analyzed in order to establish that? Uh, Will, thanks. A good question. Actually, my proposal, if you want, is MOE, which is market-oriented enterprise. There is now, under U.S. law, um, a, a provision which, if the entire industry comes forward, they can ask commerce for market-oriented industry status, in which, and if, mar and if commerce agrees that the entire industry is market-oriented, they will apply normal anti-dumping rules. Uh, commerce has never, ever granted this. 
Um, and the primary reason, and we'll get too bogged down, but it's an evidentiary one. Commerce rules well. Only the largest exporters came forward, and there's this big industry in China, and we don't have enough information. And so they say, you know, we, we, we can't make our, make our findings. Um, and so what this proposal is is really allow individual exporters um, uh, to, to seek it. And if I may just take 30 seconds, um, this GPX case that was Renser, it's called GPX, was actually a case, it was a case against off-the-road tires in which the largest exporter was wholly owned by an American company. An American company uh, essentially built this Chinese factory, had an American manager, it was American accounting standards, and this, this particular Chinese exporter did not sell in China. All they did was to export to market economy countries. This exporter went to Commerce and said, please, treat me as a market-oriented enterprise, apply only normal anti-dumping rules. Commerce refused uh, and, and hit the company with 30% uh, anti-dumping margins. And so they were annoyed and went to court. And so... Uh, that's how the GPX case uh, came about. Eric? And identify yourself, because there are people. Uh, Eric Solidin. Eric Solidin, again, from Stewart and Stewart. Uh, Matt and I have uh, faced off over NME methodology in the past, and this is neither the time nor place to, to get into that. But the one... <laughs> one um, uh, observation, I think, you know, to be to be fair, whatever else you may think of enemy methodology, is to not overlook the fact that if a Chinese producer or exporter is importing a component product from a market economy country, then commerce does use the market price for that for that input. Until they don't. They, yeah, right. Yeah. They use it, but under pretty strict rules that were tightened uh, once already within the last five to ten years. Um, and what they're proposing again in this 14-point plan is to restrict it yet again. Now, we don't know exactly in what way, and we don't know whether they'll follow through with all of these uh, proposed changes, but... Okay. It's fair. That's, yeah, yes. And, let, and me, let, me, let me address that a second. So here we are. They're going to be market economy in 2016. There's nothing you can do about it. So let's talk about it. There's nothing to do with China. And by the way, regardless of whether they are a market economy in 2016, right? So it's completely yeah. uh, let's, <laughs> arbitrary. Let's say it's Mongolia. And let's say Mongolia had 1.3 billion people with an average GDP of 5,000 per head. That country would be the most interesting country in the world to many U.S. corporations. Basically, U.S. big business thinks they have to be number one, two, or three in the Chinese market, or they're screwed. Not because it's Chinese or anything of the sort, it just is it's big. Officially, China is the second biggest market in the world by GDP. No company makes anything called a GDP. They make things. All right? And a lot of things are bought by people, and if you have a lot of people who can afford them, you become the biggest market, and you have to be there. And if you're not, you're Chrysler. Um, um, so in that context, here we are fighting about something that's going to happen in five years. And we're, we're so politically driven by inward-bound anti-dumping <laughs> cases, we're not going to get anything for it. 
Whereas if we made a deal now, we could get something. Never happened. Um, other countries are doing that all over the world. People are making deals with China, including the EU, to treat it as a market economy before 2016, and they're getting something in return. We're not. We're dumb. <laughs> Questions? Dan, do you have a question? Robert's, Robert's got one. Uh, Robert DeFrancesco, Wiley Ryan. And actually, this is a question from Matt on sampling. Mm -hmm. As you know, the Department of Commerce has been selecting fewer and fewer respondents over a period of years in various administrative reviews. And I'd like you to maybe comment a little bit about the free rider problem that that engenders, and isn't that a benefit to both petitioners and respondents for addressing those smaller companies that may not get reviewed? Is it a benefit to both respondents and petitioners? I, I guess I, uh, well, first of all, you're right. They have been choosing uh, fewer and fewer and oftentimes only choose two. And under their current proposal, choosing two wouldn't even put them in a sampling situation. They would still just choose the largest. Um, I, I, you call it free rider. I guess uh, actually there are, there, are, there are plenty of companies out there who request reviews themselves, respondents request the views, reviews themselves, who would love to be reviewed. <laughs> Um, and in fact, uh, that's, that's part of what apparently justifies the possibility of sampling. The only problem, of course, with sampling is the very word, even though it's allowed under the law, which is that you still don't have any clue whether you're going to be chosen or not. Um, free rider, uh, you know, are you a, if, if the mandatory respondents get a high, one of them gets a high rate, the other one gets a zero, everybody's subject to that high rate. Doesn't sound like a much of a free rider situation. It sounds like, uh, sounds like you're. Yeah. Respondent who was prepared for that review, doesn't he see a benefit in only getting that margin for himself and not for the other respondents? Well, certainly they, they see a benefit in getting, yes, of course, they're going to see a benefit for themselves. But I, I guess ultimately, this, the, 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 you're going to have the situation whether you sample or whether you choose the largest, either way, right? Um, the, there's a, it, it's an inherent problem in the system that Commerce Department doesn't have the resources to 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 uh, to uh, examine you know 100 100 respondents. So I think you're always going to have the possibility of 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 as you as you put it the free rider system situation. Yeah. That, that's a little clinical with respect an inherent problem. If you're a company and I've represented major evil foreign exporters to the U.S. like Cargill, IBM, and Rockwell. Um, if you're a company and you're, you don't get your day in court, to quote one of those clients, it's un-American. Uh, you don't get a chance to be judged on your own data. The theory of the anti-dumping system is that's okay in the investigation because it gets picked up in a review. Right. But now it, and, um, it would happen even with taking the largest. But the, the, and all of that is just theory. The fact is, sampling leads to extortion. I'm not casting expersions on your excellent law firm. 
know. They've made these deals. I have made these deals. I'm not allowed to talk about them. When The minute you go to sampling and reviews, you're opening up the floodgates to extortion. And com- until commerce is willing to actually require certification that no money changes hands and back it up with investigations, they shouldn't go anywhere near sampling in investigations or reviews. Commerce is, if not knowingly, well, I think knowingly, but commerce is actively encouraging extortion. It makes the U.S. dumping system look bad all over the world. You wonder why the U.S. gets slammed so often for its anti-dumping system when other countries are worse. And it's because we tolerate things like extortion. Putting the extortion side to uh, a side issue aside for a moment, Robert, the other issue here that, that we have run across is an important policy that, that Commerce put out not too well, I guess how many years ago was it, 20 years ago in the Colombian Flowers case, was that if you over repeated uh, reviews, you're not being chosen, you wanted to be chosen uh, as a mandatory respondent, you're not chosen, Commerce laid out a policy under which uh, you would tell the Commerce Department, look, I haven't, I have not uh, dumped for three consecutive years. I want to be looked at now, even though you haven't chosen me previously. It's 32 years, 31 years. Oh, 31 years, okay. Nobody ever took advantage of it in Colombian Flowers. Nobody ever took advantage of it in the years since, at least as far as I know. We tried it in shrimp. For three years? The, 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 these, no, not three zeros, but the notion of a, a non-mandatory respondent seeking this. And the Commerce Department decided, you know, that was a policy that really only applied to Columbian Flowers. They didn't make it available to us, uh, so we're obviously appealing that issue. But the point is that, uh, yes, companies, to, 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 to Gary's point, companies oftentimes very, want, very much want their day in court. 31 years ago, Commerce had uh, a way for them to at least perhaps not review after review get their own, their own rate, but at least prove that they had zeros. And Commerce has shut that off as well. Yeah. Robert, I, I would just comment that this is one issue I believe that petition respondents can agree on. That is, there should be more exporters reviewed investigations and, and administrative reviews. I mean, for every, every, every example that you can cite of supposed free rider, we can cite of, of an exporter desperately wanting their day in court or an exporter uh, getting quite harmed by the limitation because, and this has happened, unfortunately, uh, in, a, in several cases where Commerce only picks two, one gets a zero, one goes full, adverse facts available. And so there's no sort of no margin that they can use, and Commerce then has to come up with something, and it's usually rather high, and the exporters who said, I wanted to be picked, I could have shown you it was zero, and now I'm getting kind of slammed for someone else's sins, and, and, they, and they feel. Um, but, you know, at the same point, I take your point on the petitioner's side saying if someone gets uh, uh, 7%, and that 7% is uh, like in furniture. Furniture is a classic example. Uh, with, there were four exporters. The average was 6%, and 198 Chinese exporters could ship under, under 6%. But that that's, uh, has to do with the resources of the Commerce Department. Other questions? I want to add one thing on cost, because it's emblematic of this whole thing. Everyone has discussed cost as if it's a normal test. Actually, the cost test was put in in 1975 by one senator to fix one case, uh, where they couldn't find dumping under the normal rules. Uh, it then, and the rule that was put in was you would look at the average cost. 
and the legislative history is perfectly clear that you look at average cost over a long period of time. Why? Because, as the legislative history noted, large commercial aircraft, which the U.S. exports, uh, can take 30 years to return their costs. So you look at average cost over 30 years. Within five to 10 years, commerce had reduced that down to looking at the last fiscal year only, not at long-term cost recovery, and now down to a quarter. Why does this matter? Because what the cost test says in anti-dumping is you look at fully allocated cost without getting all everyone too technical. That's everything. It's variable cost of inputs, but it's also the factory, the financing, it's R&D. What's bizarre is the same year this went into effect, Professor Arita published his seminal article which said, no, the right test for cost is variable cost. And that became the rule in U.S. antitrust cases. And that's what drives the entire U.S. anti-dumping system and, indeed, the entire world anti-dumping system, because once the U.S. put it in, everyone copied us. So you now have a world where locals can sell at variable cost and foreigners have to sell at short-term average cost. And that's a price wedge. Why does this matter? Any of you have a cell phone or laptop? You wouldn't have them. Moore's Law, which some of you may know, that computing power doubles every 18 months, that's technical. What matters is driving the prices of semiconductors down. 1971, Fairchild, a U.S. producer of semiconductors, cut the prices two-thirds, and that's what led to consumer electronics. Cutting the prices two-thirds was, under this definition, dumping, because they did it worldwide. But without that, you wouldn't have consumer electronics because semiconductors take a long time to recover their cost because the factories are expensive. So if you look at the, the, the full-year cost for the first, any of the first three or four years, semiconductors are always dumped. That's why they find dumping. Do you think big U.S. companies set up their plants? You know, the board of directors doesn't approve these things if they're going to lose money over time. They only approve them if they make money. So what you have is this economic idiocy is the heart of the dumping law, and it's been accepted. No one even mentioned it. That's why I am. Next panel.